welcome to Carrying On The Go, your exclusive access to the latest news and commentary from the current issue of Caring For The Ages, the official newspaper of AMDA, the Society for Post-Acute and Long-Term Care Medicine. Statements made by guests on the podcast are their own opinions and do not necessarily reflect the position of the society. A speaker's appearance on the program does not imply an endorsement of them, their views, or any entity they represent. This podcast is eligible for ABPLM pre-approved certified medical director credits. Details will be provided at the end of this podcast. And now here's our host of Caring on the Go, Dr. Carl Steinberg. Welcome to Caring on the Go. I'm your host, Dr. Carl Steinberg. Caring on the Go, a member of the AMDA on the Go podcast series, spotlights articles and stories from the Caring for the Ages magazine from AMDA, the Society for Post-Acute and Long-Term Care Medicine. With every new issue, we welcome Caring for the Ages editor-in-chief, Dr. Elizabeth Gallick, to discuss some key articles. In this episode, we'll be highlighting the April 2022 issue of Caring. And before we start, I just want to say to our listeners, many of whom attended our annual meeting in Baltimore in March, that it was just such a pleasure to see a lot of you in person for the first time in three years. And I don't know about you, but I'm already looking forward to next March. And I'm also thoroughly enjoying my new role as immediate past president of AMDA. That, that's some of the best uh, times, Carl, when you get to be immediate past. <laughs> you get to, to help um, the new president in that transition, and um, it's more of a time of reflection for you. So yep. congratulations. Thank you. Yeah, and, and you don't have to run the calls, right? You can just, uh, you can just attend the calls. And uh, yeah, anyway, um, and we also did have a nice meeting of the Caring for the Ages editorial advisory board at the, at the Baltimore meeting. So that's always great to get together with uh, the people that help us put this together. So as you know, Dr. Gallick is a nurse practitioner in long-term care and community-based settings through a clinical practice within the Shepherd Pratt Health System. She's a professor at the University of Maryland School of Nursing, where she teaches in the Adult Gerontology Primary Care Nurse Practitioner Program and conducts research to improve care practices for older adults with dementia and their caregivers in long-term care. And thank you for educating nurses uh, about our care setting and about geriatrics because uh, it's so important. So just thought I'd throw that in, Beth. Well, we, we love geriatrics here in Maryland and lots of great leaders like Barb Resnick and, and others. So we're, we're fortunate. Yeah, Steve Levinson, right? Yeah. And Steve, cool. yep. Yep, he's right down the street. <laughs> yeah, I, I shouldn't start throwing out names because then people will be, you know, upset that I didn't mention them. So all of y'all from the, the Mid Atlantic chapter of AMDA is uh, active and strong. Let's They're rock that. stars. I agree. <laughs> all right, so today we're going to start out by talking about the front page top article by our senior reporter Joanne Caldi on weather-related disasters. And this turns out to be a timely topic, uh, considering that President Biden recently announced the plan to improve the care in our nursing homes, part of which included disaster preparedness. So uh, very topical, good planning. Uh, and I'm sure many of our listeners have had either direct or indirect experience with disasters over the years and evacuations, as I've had in Southern California related to wildfires uh, in past years. 
So Beth, what can you tell us about the importance of planning ahead for weather-related disasters? So it's really important to involve all the stakeholders in pre-planning. Um, so not just individuals at the facility itself, but also if there is a parent organization, including those individuals as well, um, and having some resident representation and family, um, always important. There, um, you can do drills and they actually have tabletop exercises that can help increase people's confidence in handling a disaster. And I actually, um, this content really intrigued me and um, looked up some information about tabletop exercises related to natural disasters. And the National Nurse-Led Care Consortium, which is funded by the National Network of Public Health Institutes, has some really great um, tools that are available free to use online. And it goes through a variety of uh, natural disasters, including wildfire, tornado, winter storms, flooding, heat waves, um, as well as um, some things that are not always weather related, like power issues um, or things like that. So um, some, some great uh, materials are available online to help you and your facility with um, the pre-planning and tabletop exercises. Uh, it also will give uh, the, the staff a chance to identify some residents who may need some extra support. The other thing that this article talked about was um, how experience can impact perceptions. So there are some individuals who may have been through natural disasters before and are kind of resilient and used to dealing with them, whereas others, it could trigger past trauma. So trying to kind of think about this beforehand is, is really helpful. Mm -hmm. um, and if we can uh, do things like signing up for weather alerts early, so that gives us more time for pre-planning, that's another great thing um, that we can do at the facility level. Yeah, and, and you, you talked a little bit about like with evacuations and that sort of thing, that can be, that's a whole sort of transfer trauma is a real thing for some of our residents. And one thing that occurred to me was, um, if you might have some residents who are actually able to help with, with uh, moving people out or with helping others transition sort of as a, you know, peer, uh, peer support. And uh, that's something I think we sometimes uh, forget about using our own residents uh, and, like you said, their family members as a resource. I, I worked in a facility, gosh, it's been years and years ago, but there was a bomb scare that happened. And we had to evacuate um, the nursing home side of the building and have everyone go over to the assisted living. And um, the assisted living residents um, helped by kind of welcoming, being the welcome wagon mm. um, and you know, sitting with people to, to kind of comfort them. So uh, you know, that's, that's a little example of what happened in, in real life. Yeah, yeah. So I and I do think these tabletop exercises can be really useful. But of course, you can't plan for every single contingency, just like when we're doing advanced care planning for for medical illnesses, we can't envision every possible scenario. But I think that uh, it's certainly helpful to have have a plan in mind, even if even if you may have to change plans uh, in midstream. And uh, do you have any additional insight into what we could take home from this article uh, for, for our listeners? 
Sure. So, you know, I think it's important to learn lessons from each and every disaster, even if it's something as simple as a power outage for a short period of time. Um, and not to kind of uh, second guess or, or dwell on one regrets, but learn from those experiences so that next time, um, you know, perhaps um, there's uh, better comfort or better preparation. The, the other thing to remember is to really recognize the staff for all of their efforts, because mm -hmm. we do know, particularly, you know, when there's winter storms or things we have some advance warning for, staff often make um, sacrifices in terms of coming in early, spending overnight, uh, doing things outside their normal job scope, just to kind of make sure that um, the work continues and, and, you know, rewarding staff for that and letting them know how important they are. Yeah, amen to that. And that not just for disasters, but every single day, right? Of course, of course. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay, well, thank you for that. So now let's move on to our second article for discussion, which is about our old friend aspirin which uh, also came from page one of this issue. So aspirin has been an old standby for both primary and secondary prevention of coronary artery disease, but the recently updated recommendations, uh, especially for older people, have been less enthusiastic about uh, widespread aspirin use in primary prevention. So uh, what are the take-home messages from this column? So, you know, the... United States Preventative Service Task Force, the USPSTF, um, released a draft in the fall of uh, 2021, and it really focused on the primary prevention against cardiovascular disease in adults age 60 and older. And um, the, the upshot of things is they do not recommend initiating low-dose aspirin as primary prevention. Certainly, I think things are really different for secondary prevention. Um, and these recommendations mirror what the American College of Cardiology and the American Heart Association came out with in 2019. And all those recommendations were based on a 2019 meta-analysis where they looked at 15 different randomized controlled trials and found that um, using aspirin for primary prevention, while it did reduce the overall occurrence of non-fatal ischemic events, so things like a TIA or a stroke or even a heart attack, um, it was associated with the higher risk of major bleeding. And there was no difference in terms of death. Um, and so they assigned it, um, at least in the draft copy, a grade D. And that's when the evidence is pointing toward recommending against a particular intervention because the harm likely outweighs the benefits. Um, and I think, you know, in geriatrics, we're, we're fortunate in the sense that, um, you know, it's so important that we talk to our patients about, um, you know, kind of what the use of the medicine is for and make decisions with them together. Um, I, I know in the article, it, the authors um, that, well, the, the, um, there was an interview done and um, the authors indicate that there were patients who stopped their aspirin because of misunderstanding about what the difference between primary and secondary prevention is. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, I think in our advanced care planning sessions, this gives us an opportunity to kind of go over 
why you know we've prescribed certain medicines and making sure it's consistent with goals of care. Right, and uh, I think that's obviously we we strive for person-centered care, and there may be people who uh, are at risk for coronary disease, uh, or you know, there's and you can do other types of testing like these coronary calcium scores and so on. Um, and so it may not be never use aspirin for primary prevention, and it may not even be always use aspirin for secondary prevention, but uh, we take things on a case-by-case -case basis. We uh, help people make informed decisions on, on whether the risks outweigh the benefits. And to me, I, I don't know, I'd rather have a major GI bleed, but be able to be transfused and have that solved than you know, have a big stroke or heart attack. But uh, uh, but clearly, the aspirin is not without its risks. So, uh, yeah. Yeah, and I think you you bring up a great point, Carl, about thinking about it in terms of um, disability. You know, what is the impact of uh, the disability of a particularly a major uh, cerebral vascular event? Yeah. Yeah. Well, and by the way, I, I enjoyed how the aspirin concerns were sort of incorporated into the uh, IDT column in this issue. That was a nifty little. Uh, I don't know if it was random or it was deliberate, but uh, I'm going to assume it was deliberate and give you credit for it. So. Oh, thanks, Carl. <laughs> Carrying on the go will resume after this brief message from the foundation. I'm Susan Levy, the chair of the Foundation for Post-Acute and Long-Term Care Medicine, and we're pleased to have this opportunity to share a glimpse of our mission and accomplishments due to donations from many of you listening, our generous donors. The Post-Acute and Long-Term Care Foundation is the only philanthropic entity dedicated exclusively to support and enable professionals and clinicians working in this critical service area. We've had the distinct pleasure to support such worthy projects as the Futures Program, providing more than a million dollars since inception to support practitioners developing their knowledge in their pursuits of service. Other funding priorities have included research on physician quality development measurements, the AMDA app, the Drive to Deprescribe initiative, to optimize medication use in post-acute and long-term care, and AMDA's COVID-19 vaccination toolkit. Ongoing support will enable us to continue programs realizing our mission to support the quality of life for persons in the post-acute and long-term care spectrum, and to inspire future and current practitioners and demonstrate the value of a trained and engaged workforce. Visit our new website at paltcfoundation.org Help us if you can and will, and thank you for your continued commitment to our field. And now back to our podcast. Um, all right, so next let's move on to your caring collaborative piece on resident to resident mistreatment. I'm sure that most of our listeners have faced situations where residents don't get along, and especially with the disinhibition that comes with some dementias, unfortunate incidents of emotional and even physical abuse can occur. So what are some of the recommendations on how to prevent or reduce the impact of uh, these types of resident on resident incidents? Sure. So one of the reasons I was, I kind of chose this topic is I've been seeing it more recently. Mm -hmm. Me too. Um, and and I, I think during COVID when people were uh, more secluded to their rooms or maybe they were out in small groups, we didn't have as much resident to resident interaction. And now with most facilities being, um, you know, uh, highly vaccinated and, you know, residents are, are starting to kind of come out again and be involved and be in the dining room together. I, I think we're seeing um, a bit more of this. And, and so some things we can do 
is make sure that we've provided training um, on the early identification and the prevention of resident to resident mistreatment and, and helping staff to understand that um, resident to resident mistreatment can happen if a resident willfully hurts or harms another resident. And willful um, is defined as a deliberate action that's not occurring accidentally. However, what a lot of people don't realize is there's no exclusion from abuse for, for people who have cognitive impairment or um, a, a mental disorder. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, even if they didn't attempt to want to hurt someone, if they got angry at them and went to push them, the other resident, and that resident fell, that could be considered abuse, even if the resident didn't intend um, to injure that person. Right. Well, and with somebody with right with somebody with severe dementia, it's sort of hard to even attribute uh, any kind of you know volition. Uh, they're just on some kind of uh, sort of lower uh, brain protection kind of uh, autopilot thing, right? It's not like they're deliberately thinking, I want to hurt this person or, or something like that. Right. But the, the states, um, you know, the surveyors are mm -hmm. kind of, in many cases, going to the letter of the law, and that always has to be reported right. um, and, and properly investigated. So training is one thing. The other is to really clearly document so that can help you identify triggers or antecedents to some of the behaviors. And then if you have particular interventions, also documenting the resident's response so we can determine if, if that um, intervention is effective because the care plan may need to be modified. The other thing that's important is really working closely with your behavioral health consultants if you have them. Um, while their documentation is important, we need to make sure that they alone are not doing all the documentation related to resident on resident um, um, mistreatment or aggression, and that staff from dis different disciplines also need to be involved with that. And then, uh, you know, really teaching staff um, about appropriate supervision, particularly in busy common areas where many residents may be interacting with one another or in dining rooms. Particularly, a lot of these episodes happen at change of shift when there may not be as much staff available. So making sure that that's part of your plan. And then having um, some type of um, recreation or engagement plan for residents who may be at risk for this type of behavior so that they have um, less time where they're left to their own devices and, and more supervision and more structure. Those are all good, good pieces of advice. And I know certainly I've seen um, residents who, you know, there are just two people who do not get along. And so uh, clearly one of the obvious ways of preventing them from getting into it is by keeping them separated and uh, not having them participate in the same activity at the same time. But that can be a challenge too when people are fully ambulatory and, and are you know able to kind of roam about wherever they want. So uh, they're very challenging situations. Uh, they are indeed. Yeah. Well, thank you. So uh, the last piece we're gonna talk about today is Christine Kilgore's article announcing AMDA's newly released revision of the pain clinical practice guideline, which by the way is available at no cost for all society members who are joining or renewing for 2022. So. If you haven't done that yet, that's another uh, 
another nice bonus of uh, remaining or becoming a member. Uh, so pain, um, you know, over the years we've seen quite a shift in, in pain and uh, we always want to treat pain to the extent we can, but there's been a little bit less of a focus on the numerical pain scale, which some years ago, AMDA's House of Delegates uh, uh, passed a resolution that went on to the AMA and got passed there um, about um, not sort of calling pain the fifth vital sign and that sort of thing. Um, and this is a, a great new guideline. <laughs> it really updates some of the, uh, uh, the previous information with up-to-date uh, uh, up uh, guidelines. And I think sometimes we're so focused on not prescribing opioids these days that we, we might um, be too conservative in pain management. So anyway, um, what, uh, what are your take-homes from this revised clinical practice guideline and uh, anything that stood out to you, Beth? So I really like the emphasis on accurate recognition and assessment and how important that is so that you're not just jumping from the patient reporting pain or displaying pain behaviors immediately to treatment um, and making assumptions that you don't have uh, data to support. Um, so how do you define pain? How do you measure it over time? And um, you know, key elements that can be included as part of the physical examination of, of residents that we're seeing in these settings. Also, I liked the emphasis on the role of the interprofessional team um, so that it's not just um, the individual who can prescribe medications, but how everybody really has, a, has to play a role in this in terms of assessment and um, monitoring uh, resident behavior and noticing you know, when they seem to be uncomfortable. Right. The other, the other thing I really liked was um, the consideration of both pharmacologic as well as non-pharmacologic interventions. And the uh, CPG has some great tables um, with um, both types of treatments. And for the pharmacologic ones, um, they also have information in terms of dosing uh, that's focused on, on you know, geriatric dosing. Um, and then last but not least, um, there, there is some um, focus in this about when a pain consult might be indicated. Um, and further things that may come out in the future, um, it sounds like the same group that worked on the guideline is also developing a CPG toolkit on pain. So more on that um, you know, as we, as we uh, move forward. Yeah, well, that's great. And I do think uh, sometimes uh, we assume, or, or I shouldn't say we, but I, I mean, there are those who practice among us who assume that, hey, you know, pain is inevitable. Everybody has to have pain. And, um, you know, you're, you're 80 years old and you have severe arthritis, so there's, you're going to have pain and uh, kind of throw up their hands. And we certainly don't want to do that. And it's nice to have some some concrete recommendations, not just for medication, but but for other things that can help uh, help for pain, because there really is some good evidence on that. So I'm glad to see that we've uh, uh, incorporated some of that into this CPG. Um, so before we wrap up, I wanted to also briefly mention there's a great piece uh, uh, from Dr. Mel Hector about vitamin D, sort of 
a perennial controversy about uh, vitamin D insufficiency, deficiency, and supplementation, how much to supplement. Uh, I just recently read that uh, vitamin D3 seems to be much, much better than, uh, than D2 uh, for supplementation. So that's a, a great piece that I'd encourage our listeners to open up and have a look at. Um, and then we have an ethics column from Dr. Abid Iraqi about decision-making when the person uh, that has been designated as a surrogate uh, has lo also lost her decision-making capacity. And uh, how do we come to consensus in situations like that, which should remind all of us to, uh, to remind our patients and also in our own lives and our own families to revise our advanced directives periodically uh, to, to ensure that we have the right person designated to make decisions on our behalf. Uh, and then there's a little blurb about Ascension Health, uh, which is a, a small a management corporation with uh, a few dozen facilities, I believe. Uh, they've decided to require that all their medical directors be CMD certified, similar to what California has done statewide. And I hope that we'll be seeing more and more people um, insisting on that sort of baseline level of, of uh, uh, clinical and regulatory competency um, among their medical directors. So um, Beth, anything else you wanted to, to say before we wrap? So just stay tuned for the month of May. We're going to be having a special issue um, focused on the post-acute long-term care workforce. Well, great. I can't wait to talk, talk to you about that one next month. Um, so great. That's going to wrap it up for April's Caring on the Go podcast. Under the leadership of Editor-in-Chief, Dr. Elizabeth Gallick, Caring for the Ages continues to review and reflect the wonderful work being done by AMDA, the Society for Post-Acute and Long-Term Care Medicine, and our leaders, members, and communities. So please take a look at this April issue, either online or your old school paper version that our members uh, are still getting. Dr. Gallick, thank you so much for spending your time with Caring on the Go. Thanks, and Carl. It's always such a pleasure. <laughs> Likewise. And uh, references for this podcast, as usual, can be found at www.caringfortheages.com. Until next time, I'm Dr. Carl Steinberg for Caring on the Go. If you are a physician interested in obtaining ABPLM pre-approved certified medical director credits for certification or recertification, go to our learning management system at apex.paltc.org. That's apex.paltc.org. Click on the podcast and follow the link to this episode.